Kong is still severe, with more people venturing out. You're listening to the news on RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. Welcome to a new week of Money Talk on Radio 3 on Monday the 21st of March. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines. A two-hour call Friday between US President Joe Biden and President Xi Jinping failed to resolve their differences over the war in Ukraine. President Biden warned China not to provide Russia with military equipment, while President Xi criticised the sweeping and indiscriminate sanctions imposed on Russia by the West. James Bullard, president of the St. Louis Fed and a voting member on the FOMC, which voted to raise US interest rates by 25 basis points last week, called on Friday for the US central bank to raise its benchmark interest rate above 3% this year arguing that policymakers need to move quickly to combat inflation and avoid losing credibility. Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam announced on Friday that the government will launch a new round of the Employment Support Scheme, providing three months of subsidy at $8,000 each month to up to 1.3 million workers affected by the fifth wave of the pandemic. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Lashaw at BBVA Research and Sam Favre from Mandarin Capital and speaking... About the U.S. economy, it's John Taylor, Professor of Economics at Stanford University. On Wall Street, all three major U.S. stock indices had their best performance since November 2020. As investors shrugged off an interest rate rise from the Fed, the escalating war in Ukraine and an increased number of COVID infections across Asia. The S&P 500 gained 1.2% on Friday to 4,463 and was up 6.2% for the week. The Dow rose for the fifth day in a row, adding 274 points to 34,755. The Nasdaq added 2% to 13,894, taking its gains for the week to 8.2%. In Europe, markets have almost completely recovered from the shock of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The regional stock 600 index saw the biggest weekly rally since November 2020, jumping 5.4%. London's FTSE 100 was up 3.5% over the week. Chinese stocks listed in mainland China, Hong Kong and New York saw one of the most volatile weeks in history. The Hang Seng Index surged 17% on Wednesday and Thursday, recouping 468 billion US dollars after a historic sell-off at the beginning of the week. Hong Kong stocks finished Friday slightly lower as profit takers moved in. The Hang Seng Index slipped 0.4% or 89 points to 21,412. For the week, the index gained 4.3%, snapping a four-week losing streak. The Hang Seng Tech Index eased back 1.9% on Friday. For the week, the tech index gained 5.6%, helped by a record-breaking single-day gain of 22.2% on Wednesday. The Shanghai Composite climbed 1.1% to 3,251 for a weekly loss of 1.8%. 
In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil set a 1% higher on Friday at $107.93 a barrel, but saw a weekly loss of almost 4%. Copper was up 2.3% on the week. Gold settled more than 3% lower at $1,920 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield declined one basis point to 2.15%, and the US dollar index fell 1% last week. The euro this morning trading at $1.10.5. The bucks at 119.3 Japanese yen. Sterling rose over 1% last week to $1.31 and 3 quarters cents and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 30 cents. The Chinese yuan sits at 6.37.5 versus the dollar in offshore markets. Bitcoin rose more than 7% last week to $41,300. Uh, in Asian stock markets, first of all, Japanese markets closed today for a public holiday. Down in Australia, the SX200 is up 0.4%. In South Korea, the Cosby is flat and futures markets indicating a massive gain of over 600 points for the Hang Seng at the open, which will get it started at just above 22,000 when trading starts later on this morning. much to talk about so let's get on with it and welcome our guests we have with us Lashar Asia Chief Economist at BBVA Research morning Shark morning and also with us is Sam Favre Chief Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital Chief Executive Officer I should say at Mandarin Capital morning Sam Peter. Um, let me start by asking you both about Chinese stocks. It was one of the most volatile weeks for Chinese equities in history. Um, now that the mainland authorities have stepped in to signal support for the markets, is, is the worst over? And is it time to invest in Chinese shares again? Sam, do you want to kick off? Yeah, sure. I mean, we clearly saw some capitalization on the Chinese market. So I think short term to even medium term, we probably saw the floor. Now, I think from a Chinese equity perspective, there's been such a loss of equity. It's probably, you know, positive given we are also seeing some easing in terms of much policy. So I think the market so far should be quite supportive in China. I mean, clearly there are still some challenging regarding the slowdown and uh, also the problem, the, uh, the problem of the real estate market, which so far is not bouncing back, but clearly they have to maneuver. So putting a floor on the market and the easing, uh, and the easing of the uh, policy should be a good conditions for a rebound. I mean, it's not unprecedented for Chinese authorities to step in like this and try and stabilise the market. We have seen it uh, happen before. But do we need more than talk? Do we need to see some concrete policy actions to back up uh, what Lu He was saying at the State Council? I think at this stage, uh, there was such a one-way traffic on Chinese equity, it's probably not necessarily needed. So let's see how the market continues to trend within the next one to two weeks. But I would think the fundamentals at this stage is probably good enough. So mm-hmm. I'm sure as uh, they put a floor on the market, so if the, the market starts testing those levels again, they will definitely step in with concrete measures. I mean, we've seen the, we've seen the authorities stepping in both ways when the market was getting too hot and the ways obviously was getting slammed like it was last, uh, last week. Shark, what do you think? Are, are you encouraged by what they said? I mean, f- it was really for the first time saying um, these policy measures 
Um, things like the crackdown on tech companies have to be coordinated much more with economic policy and to ins- and also um, consideration of their effects on, on financial markets. It's really the first time we've heard the authorities say that. So are, are you encouraged? Yes, I think they are welcome measures because uh, if you look at the last week, I think that both these uh, geopolitical risk and uh, this policy risk has substantially reduced uh, on China's side. Uh, I do agree with them that uh, the Chinese authorities, uh, uh, they, they have a very positive attitude about this uh, policy risk. They want to uh, encourage the growth of these uh, high-tech companies, including uh, these uh, platform high-tech companies. But at the same time, I think that they also uh, find ways to how to ease their tension with the United States. I think definitely, uh, I think China, they, they stand in a good position with uh, uh, United States in current uh, Ukraine crisis. So that's why the market, they have this uh, confidence again, they start to invest uh, in these markets. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good uh, welcome uh, welcome matters from Chinese side. You, you say the, the Chinese are in a good position with the United States over Ukraine. We had that call on Friday between President Biden and President Xi Jinping. What was your take on that? I mean, there was sort of behind the scenes, if you like, a hint of sanctions if, uh, if China supports Russia. Um, do, you think, uh, do you think China is in a difficult position here? Uh, I think from my reading, of course, both sides announced their, uh, their summaries of that talk. The, the version looks uh, quite different. But uh, uh, according to what I, uh, what I understand, I think the, uh, now United States agree that China can take this uh, neutrality uh, role in this uh, uh, Ukraine crisis. That means that China is not going to uh, help uh, uh, Russian in terms of this uh, military or, or economic aid. But at the same time, uh, China can continue to uh, maintain a normal relation with Russia and the Ukraine. I think it seems that the United States, they accept this one. That's why the market, they have such a big rally uh, in uh, last Friday, because they think, OK, both sides know each other's attention, so they are not going to fight on this one. But of course, uh, on the United States, they need to show that they are very tough, because uh, now is the moment. All these uh, world leaders uh, want to show their toughness, uh, want to show their uh, uh, determination. Uh, but uh, I think that in ISIS, uh, both sides, uh, they agree to each other. Yeah. Sam, do you think it's still a risk that um, maybe China could get dragged into this and find itself facing sanctions? Is that um, a big concern of foreign investors? Uh, well, it's always a risk, but I think China has been uh, treading waters very carefully and then been uh, very uh, mild in their responses. I mean, we have, and the good thing is clearly the uh, US and China have restarted, uh, you know, a decent dialogue on those issues. So I personally don't think there's too much of a risk there. I really think that they are looking for coordinated solution. And China, to be fair, is in a good position because, uh, you know, there are internationally being uh, reinstated at the same time. So it's definitely positive for them. Mm. Well, what about foreign investors? This rebound has been driven largely by local um, investors. Foreign investors have sold about 40 billion renminbi of stock. That's about $6 billion worth of stock this quarter. It's the worst quarter since the Stock Connect scheme began in 2014. 
Are foreign investors, some of them were describing the market as uninvestable. Do you think they're now going to start coming back? Uh, personally, I don't think this one can stop them. Uh, I think uh, maybe they will slow down the pace of uh, selling out. Maybe they will accelerate because uh, if you see this valley, it's a good time to sell. <laughs> okay, But the problem is uh, for many foreign investors, uh, the reason why they are selling this uh, uh, market, of course, uh, the, the China has their own uh, problem. China has this uh, increasing political risk. Uh, so China's uh, authorities, and now they want to ease the market to say, okay, we still growth, uh, uh, we are still have this uh, pro-growth uh, uh, policy stance. Uh, we want to hold this uh, uh, foreign investor. But I think that the big picture is uh, now the United States, they start to tighten their, uh, inter- uh, their monetary policy. So that means uh, uh, this uh, international uh, liquidity condition, they will become tighter and tighter. And then these uh, global investors, they must uh, choose a place to start their selling. Okay, and they need to rebalance their portfolio. So that's, I, I, that's why I think this uh, long trend, um, that the global uh, investor, they will reduce their portfolios, uh, maybe for China, for other emerging markets. Uh, even in the end, they are reduced their portfolio holding for uh, United States. But they start with China because of this, uh, uh, the, the problem before. So now I think the Chinese authorities make some change. Maybe that can uh, make people not that panic. Maybe that, that can encourage this local investor to go to, into the market to ensure that uh, this uh, uh, foreign investors uh, exit won't affect the market too much. That's my reading. Sam, what's your reading of foreign investor sentiment? Do you think now they've seen enough to maybe start reconsidering um, investments in China once again? I think it depends on the kind of, in- of foreign investors. I agree fundamentally with the uh, rise of interest rates. Liquidity uh, party is going to, uh, it's going to slow. Uh, at the same time, China is a momentum-driven market in the sense that, you know, with the uh, authority stepping in, you always have a problem in terms of equity creation, equity value, equity allocation to shareholders. So the fact that suddenly you had the authority stepping in and say we are willing to support and potentially give feedback more to shareholders is going to create positive momentum at the short term. So you probably will have uh, two, counter, two, two different types of investors in China, the momentum players going back at least for some time, uh, I would say probably a quarter, where the long-term investors, I agree with the rebalancing, will probably uh, withdraw some money. But I don't think China is the worst off on this one. I think uh, some of the other emerging market players are probably worse off. Mm. Um, Shark, what do you make of President Xi Jinping's comments about reducing the economic impact of China's COVID currents? His his calling for the maximum prevention and control effect at, at the least cost. This is the first time since the pandemic started um, that he's really talked for the uh, talked about taking into account the economic costs of the COVID nineteen prevention measures. How significant is this? Uh, I think that at this stage it's still hard to say because, uh, of course, it seems that the Chinese uh, central authorities uh, they want to fine tune their strategy strategy in dealing with uh, COVID-19, because uh, now, as we see, in many places, China implement this uh, lockdown, and uh, yeah, they have a very significant negative impact on the economy. So they, they just set a 5.5% growth target for this year, right? If you want to achieve this, you must uh, have enough growth engines. But at, at this time, I think uh, uh, this, uh, uh, this anti-COVID 
measures already have a, a negative impact on this uh, policy. That's why I think that central authority, they, they want to make some adjustment to balance the economic growth and this uh, anti-COVID-19 campaign. But the problem is uh, it's very difficult to implement at the local level. As far as I know, although uh, they, they have such talks a few days ago, but uh, I talked to my friends in China, they said, uh, in fact, this uh, uh, anti-COVID matters become tighter and tighter over the past few days because the rise of the new cases. So I think the, uh, this, uh, this COVID is very tricky. So maybe we don't have, uh, we, we cannot choose between uh, this uh, coexistence or this uh, zero, zero COVID case. You can only choose mm-hmm. one of them. It's very difficult to balance that one, as shown in Hong Kong. Right. So, Sam, do you think um, that we're seeing maybe the beginnings of a move away from this zero COVID uh, policy on the mainland and that maybe authorities are now concerned about the eco- economy and the economic impact of this and need to do something to boost growth? But I think they, they have to be pragmatic. Obviously, stability is the primary focus. And now you are being hit in the uh, two main areas of growth uh, of, of the economy in China, which are Shanghai and you know, in Shenzhen, they will have to adjust. I mean, had Shenzhen factories closed for nearly a week, and they can't afford to have that, you know, dragging on for, for weeks or months like uh, it was originally in Wuhan. So just for the sake of uh, stability, they, they have to, to, you know, to do something about it. At the same time, if we see the same level of infection uh, with the population of China, they also have a sandwich problem. So I think they will be pragmatic. They will try to uh, balance the two factors. Uh, I think it will really depends on the uh, level of outbreak and where it hits. I think also that's really quite, uh, I don't think China will be considered as a whole. Okay, well, thank you both very much. You heard there uh, Sam Favreau, Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital, Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA Research. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Time's coming up to 8.21. The 25th Credit Suisse Asia Investment Conference kicks off today. And one of the key speakers this morning will be Professor John Taylor, who is Professor of Economics at Stanford University and also Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution in Oregon. And Professor Taylor joins me now on the line. Good morning, Professor Taylor. Good to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Um, now, on Wednesday, the, the Fed sounded as hawkish as it has ever done in a long time, outlining six more rate increases this year and an intent to trim its balance sheets. What is your assessment of what the Fed did last week and what it's signaling it's, it's going to do in the future? Is it enough? Too little? What are your thoughts? I don't think it's enough, but it's, it's a good sign that they've begun to move, but they seem to be behind. And this, even with the six or seven more moves this year, they'll still be behind, I'm afraid. But uh, this is based on uh, where the inflation rate is in the U.S., where the economy is, even taking into account the global situation, you're still seems to be behind. And there's still some disagreement at the FOMC about how fast to proceed. So I welcome the change, but it's just not enough. Well, we, we heard James Bullard on Friday call for the Fed to raise its benchmark interest rate above 3%, and, and he was the dissenter at the FOMC 
calling for a half a percent uh, rise at the last meeting. Um, he was basically saying that given the strength of the labour market and the broader economy, um, as well as the excessive level inflation, the Fed's got to act more aggressively to, to in effect, avoid losing credibility. Do you agree with him? Is he right on that? I agree. I think that the, that the rate is 3% by the end of this year is at least what's needed. I have various ways to calculate it, uh, and it's more than 3% is the best. But I would say if they get to 3%, which is above where they're focused on right now, that's a good sign. I'd like to see a little more. I'd like actually see 4 or 5% maybe next year sometime. But I think that is what's needed to prevent an overshooting and therefore a contraction. So I think that I think that's uh, the way that they should proceed, and we'll see if they do, but uh, they can always change if they want. But the main thing is not to get behind the curve any further than they already are. Well, we we used to have a rule, your rule, in fact. It became known as the Taylor Rule for a guide to how interest rates should be set relative to inflation. The Fed doesn't seem to take any notice of that these days. Does your rule still apply and and work in today's economy? It certainly applies. In fact, what they have done uh, since the near the end of Janet Yellen's term is to publish in their semi-annual monetary report the results of rules, including the Taylor Rule and, and other variants on the Taylor Rule. What is very interesting is in the last meeting they didn't put those in, and so I think it's because it would it would indicate that they're way behind the curve. Who knows exactly why they didn't put it in. But in the testimony of the chair, Jay Powell, he said it'll be a next time. So maybe it will be a next time. And But I think it, your question is very important. They do pay attention to the rules. They do recognize that rules are not perfect. But over the history, when they've been close to those rules, the Taylor rules is probably the most widely discussed, things work better. When they get deviate from it, things don't work so well. And there's Examples of that, the 1970s is the most famous one when the chair, Arthur Burns, said high inflation is not us. We need wage and price controls, and he convinced Richard Nixon, the president, to do that. It didn't work out so well, so eventually they had new Fed chairs, and, and uh, Paul Volcker came in and made a difference. And, but now we, we don't want to be in that situation again, but we're mm. getting close. Well, the last time the CPI was at 7.9%, Back in 1980, the Fed funds rates was 13%. So, so what should interest rates be? Um, now I noticed that they said the neutral rate uh, was 2.4%. I'm, I'm surprised at how it comes up with that when inflation's 7.9%. Well, where do you think rates should be now? Well, the neutral rate is a concept which is when the inflation rate is at a low level. So it has to be above that number. Mm. to get inflation down. The the rules, the strategies are that you go above the neutral rate to bring the inflation rate down. And that's what's been done in the past. And when they haven't done that, then inflation's got out of control and eventually they have to make, a, make it up. And so getting behind the curve too far requires an adjustment. And then that can be damaging. So the best thing by far is to get closer to the curve. And I'm not saying they need to do it overnight, but they need to do it in a determined way. And the best they can do is to give some foresight, some indication of where they're going. And I think that discussion you're hearing from a couple of FOMC members already helps that, helps people put their expectations at the right place.
Well, we used to have, many years ago, I, I seem to remember, a Fed that was quite forward-looking. It tried to um, anticipate changes in the economy, in demographics, in supply chain issues that could cause uh, a future spike in inflation and then try and get in front of it by raising interest rates ahead of time. But now the Fed it seems a lot more reactive, doesn't it? It waits until the data confirms the trend, which really now means inflation has become a lot more entrenched before it acted. How has this change at the Fed come about? Was it a deliberate change in the way policy is made following a, a review and discussion, or has that sort of happened by accident or neglect? What, what, what's your assessment of how this sort of policy setting has come about? It's a good question. I think the, the most important thing recently is the pandemic itself, which was a huge amount of uncertainty. The Fed cut the rate to nearly to zero, and uh, it did other things as well. And the question is how they get back. How do they get back to, to normal? And they've been too slow, in my view. But I think the initial force that moved them, they remember they were, Janet Yellen and Jay Powell were saying they liked the rules. It was a way to proceed. And so they were positive, but the pandemic hit and they moved away from it. I'm not saying that was a mistake, but they should get back to it fast. And, and that's that's the debate. So I don't think the idea of rules has disappeared. It's very much in the thinking of the monetary policymakers. They know them very well. They published it in their reports. But I think the most important thing is to don't deviate for too long to get back to it, because that really was work. Also, I just say this is a, a global discussion. You have to think about other central banks, too, and how they tend to uh, be related to what the Federal Reserve does. And so that's important as well. Do you think we've moved away from the forces that kept inflation low for really several decades? Things like um, cheap oil, we had a globally, a functioning global supply chain, we've had peace and stability for a long time, and of course, uh, Chinese production, which helped kept prices low and constrained inflation for a long time. Those trends seem to be coming to an end, don't they? Because we're seeing now the cost of production in China is going up uh, quite rapidly. It's no longer cheap there to manufacture. And, and also you've got these sort of seismic shifts in the labour market. A lot of people uh, don't want to work anymore. A lot of people have sort of just vanished from the workforce. Is this going to lead to much higher levels of inflation in future that we're going to have to get used to than we, than we have seen in the past? It shouldn't. It shouldn't because the, the factors you're mentioning are real. They're there. But in some sense, they're not that unusual. We've always had supply side issues. We always had estimates of what the potential for the economy is. And sometimes it's faster, sometimes it's slower. But the evidence is that the inflation comes from a monetary policy that's not paying attention to these real things. It tries to do mm -hmm. something different. And as you know, there's many factors that move monetary policy, but the most important thing is that the, is the economy, what the inflation rate is, what the, the uh, state of the economy is in terms of overall production. That that's Those forces have not really changed. And yes, the world is more integrated. That's important. More central banks are relating their decisions to what other central bankers do. The exchange rate is important. But, it, but the reality has not changed. And I think that's what central bankers are coming to realize. Mm, the, the Federal Reserve seems to be saying that these higher prices are a result of these supply chain dysfunctions. And there's almost this, this hope that inflation is going to reverse, prices will come down just as soon as the problems in Ukraine are over and this global supply chain dysfunction works itself out. Are, are they right to think along those lines? 
I don't, I don't think so. I don't know to what extent they're all thinking in those lines. There's some disagreement. But, it, but the situation in Ukraine is very important because that does drive prices up a little bit, but, and maybe a lot. But the main thing is where they were behind the curve even before the Ukraine blow up. And I think that's the thing to keep in mind. You were, mm. They were behind. People were talking about behind. So don't overdo it. There's no reason to overdo it because, you know, out here in California, gasoline prices are $6 a gallon. Uh, and so you can't overdo it. But, but you take that into account and you get a better, more smoother, more forward-looking monetary policy. So can finally the can the U.S. economy cope if rates do get back above three uh, percent, or is that going to lead to a recession? I don't I don't think it will. I I know it won't if the Fed does it properly and doesn't wait too long. We've had many adjustments of interest rates coming up in the past, and it's it's a normal interest rate. The, the economy works better in normal interest rate. People know what that means. And so I think it will work better. We'll have a longer expansion. And by the way, that's good for the world. That's good for the world, for the, economy, the U.S. economy to continue to go well. And I think it will if, if, this, if they follow the rules, so to speak, whatever you want to call it, uh, follow the strategy that has worked so well in the past. Professor Taylor, thank you very much for joining me this morning. That's John Taylor, Professor of Economics at Stanford University and Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution in Oregon. And you can hear him speaking at the 25th Credit Suisse Asian Investment Conference, which kicks off later today. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets, the ASX 200 is up about a third of a percent down in Sydney. The Cosby in South Korea is off about 0.2%. Japanese markets are closed for public holiday. It does look like the Hang Seng is going to open up with gains of over 600 points this morning, taking the index above 28,000. Gwent crude oil uh, is around $107.96 a barrel, and gold this morning trading at $1,920 an ounce. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. Coming up after the news is Radio 3's COVID update with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, one or two showers. Sunny intervals during the day. The maximum temperature is going to be around 26 degrees and then occasional showers in the next few days. The temperature right now is 22 degrees, 89% relative humidity. 8.32, here's Andrew Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. The number of new COVID infections in Hong Kong has fallen to a three-week low. Health officials have reported about 14,000 from 16,500 the day before. Here's Todd Harding. The Center for Health Protection's Dr. Truong Shuk Kwan cited a number of factors that could have contributed to the drop in infections, such as the possibility the outbreak has already peaked, a spike in people getting vaccinated, and social distancing measures having an impact. Chief Executive Carrie Lam is expected to use her daily COVID briefing this morning to give an interim review of social distancing measures and explain how restrictions can be relaxed in phases. But she has made it clear the COVID situation in Hong Kong is still severe, with more people venturing out. The vice chairman of the International Chamber of Commerce, George Cotherley, says any quarantine period or home isolation requirement would be turnoffs for business travelers. You need to open the border to people who have been fully vaccinated, maybe triple vaccinated, but don't require them to test, because I think people just won't take the risk of having their staff stranded here in the middle of a business trip because they tested positive. 
A tax partner of KPMG China says the government's latest pandemic wage support is both effective and affordable, but doesn't help businesses that have already closed down. Stanley Ho was commenting on the government's employment support scheme. For, the, for those that already closed down, I think the, uh, these schemes may not be helpful. Uh, and I think the government uh, needs to do, um, uh, give another other sort of incentive, for example, uh, so, uh, the support for their startups uh, to, to bring the business alive again. And I think going more uh, in a more medium and long term is how to uh, bring open up the, um, the, the border so that uh, to facilitate the international business. Ukraine says Russian missiles have hit an art school in the besieged city of Mariupol, where 400 people have been sheltering. A Ukrainian member of parliament, Helena Yanchenko, said Mariupol was in ruins. Russian occupants have uh, bombed about 80% of all the buildings in the city. People are trying to find shelters in any other kind of buildings, 